Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kickstarter Journeys. Today we have with us Floyd Liu, who has a game live on Kickstarter now called Koi Garden. But not only that, he's got quite a few other projects that he's been a part of. Floyd, how are you doing today? Hey, how's it going, Wes? Thanks for having me in the show. Doing great, thank you. That's great to see you already funded, well funded, I should say, for Koi. Over $13,000 raised, over 350 backers, and 19 days to go, and we're talking today. That's amazing. Yeah, I think so too. I was I came in not expecting anything, but it's been going really well. Right on. And then you've got some other names behind you. If anybody looks up your history, you've done The Refuge, The Refuge Terror from the Deep, Highlander is a Duel, and Noises at Night. So we might touch on some of your experience from those other campaigns, but maybe we'll start the way I always like to start is how did you discover Kickstarter and why do you still use it today? So Kickstarter, I think um, a lot of people relate Kickstarter with um, promotion, but I, I feel like the tabletop industry wouldn't be where it, it's at right now without Kickstarter. Uh, back then, five years ago, it, Kickstarter was a totally different uh, being itself. <laughs> there, yeah. there wasn't much um, uh, tabletop backers. And now, um, you know, it's grown significantly and i think um a lot of big players and a lot of people i know help contribute to that uh growth that kickstarter had um so that's part of the reason why um i like kickstarter i'm still on the kickstarter platform because it really socks it to the big guy (laughs) uh the big guys who are just kind of um you know looking at costs and not getting quality games out there and just um, selling more Monopoly. Not that not that Monopoly is bad, but hey, we want to see other games out there. That's cool too. You don't like Pie Face or you know poop in the toilet <laughs> games on your local counter? I, I like those when my kid <laughs> is around, but you know sometimes I want to see some some cool new new 3D trees or or something. Um, with animals that, that moves with strategy. <laughs> you got to have anthropomorphic animals. I mean, <laughs> all these fun games with them. No, you're right, though. Kickstarter would uh, has absolutely changed the landscape of gaming and made it possible for creators like yourself and myself to, to get games out there that we probably never could have even put in front of a publisher because they would say they want a different idea or a different theme or they would want to take over. So um, I'm glad that you've stuck with it for so long and you've had some really neat designs come out of it. So Koi Garden itself, um, it's kind of a very gives you a mellow sense when you watch the video and when you see some of the um, images of the cards and such and trying to get all that together into a game and decide, you know, how much do I want to raise? How much should I expect backers to pledge? It's a very complex formula and you've gone through ups and downs of how much you would budget a game for. So for example, the refuge terror from the deep, you had a budget of, or a goal of 14,000 some dollars, but for Koi, you have a goal of $500. So how do you decide from campaign to campaign, you know, what's that sweet spot or what, what matters to my funding goal? Um, I think what really matters is starting early and having strong visuals and not over detailing a lot of um, new uh, Kickstarter project uh, 
people they they kind of over detail what their project entitles um and i think a lot of it needs to have good gameplay as well i think gameplay is really everything and that's that's really underlooked um what do you think wes no i think you're right and um if you can describe the gameplay both in the video like you did, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but also in the campaign page, uh, that really will sell it. Now, when you say um, start early, what do you mean by that? Um, I think when you start early, um, a lot of people will start doing some of the projects ahead of time, and then they won't um, they won't market their product. But you can market it in parallel while you're doing some of your prototypes or start collecting some of the uh, – lists of play testers and maybe put them on um, a MailChimp or uh, some sort of email list yeah. so you can get them back later. And when people are starting out, they often forget that and they, um, they overlook that and shoot my first project. I was doing, I was enjoying a lot of play tests and I, I forgot to collect, people's names yeah. <laughs> and i i know you've had this similar experience right wes yeah i mean um the, the first uh, game or two that i made it wasn't so much about me getting names it was me about getting the gameplay functional and then realizing oh i probably should have had their um, email or had them sign up for something because they might have been one of my first supporters since they were one of the first players right I think starting with the start, start your group, engage with your community right away and uh, address their issues. Um, I see a lot of new designers not addressing um, a lot of their communities. Like if, if they have feedback about your gameplay, it's always, I mean, you don't have to a hundred percent listen to it, but it's always, it's always best to keep it in your notes somewhere. That's important and see if it's possible to, that a lot, if a lot of people want to change that aspect, then maybe it needs to be changed. Yeah. And when you were um, deciding, you know, when was my game ready to actually send out review copies or prototype copies to, because I noticed you do have a couple of videos on there of people that have played your game live and given you videos on online. Did you pay for those videos? Did you send out free prototypes? How did that process work? So I, I wish I could pay for those videos and <laughs> I have paid for videos before, but I, you know, I wanted to keep the budget really low on this one. Yeah. Um, and this is not like a big, heavy territory control game or, or some a 4X game. Um, but, you know, um, I sent them out and I promised for a brand new product when the campaign's over or when, when I'm ready to deliver. So they, they'll get a final product. And I specifically chose a lot of new reviewers to help them kind of... Uh, Ex, you know, expose themselves and uh, help them out with my viewers as well uh, to kind of spread the spread the love around. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you get some some failed ones too. Like some, some may not review, um, but it's worth the risk, I think. Right on. And when you were putting your campaign together, you must have thought that there was going to be value in, in getting a nice video to kind of represent your product. So you had Ori Kagan. He's a filmmaker based out of Israeli, I believe. And um, 
what he brought to the table was really fancy. I mean, uh, it's a minute and a half, and it's got a lot of visuals of the game, but also of a koi pond and, and some dynamics going on behind it. What was your involvement in getting that video made? I think um, Orin or you did a really good job, and I think um, a lot of the people, if you've seen all my videos before, they're all really great. I've worked with a lot of different uh, video editors. But I think the, the important take here is that you have to work really well with your video guy. And by working well, I mean not just give him a task and say, okay, here, do it, make the video. But you, you have to be able to visualize what you want to entice to your backers. Uh, so in this case, I gave Ori a very um, focused direction so he could help um, shift his focus more towards uh, creating a quality video. Yeah. Than trying to guess, hey, this 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 person want you know this or this this person wants something else. Yeah, and it looks like you guys really partnered up nicely to get what you have there. If anybody gets a chance to watch the video, um, even if you're not back in the game, I think it's worth seeing how they put that together, um, starting with a, a non-board game introduction and then expanding into the board game visuals after that. It was a nice um, theatric there, so well done. Thank you. And and one thing I also want to mention that I, I think it's more important, like back then, I focus more on the thematics, but I, I feel like explanation of the gameplay is more important on the video. Yeah, I agree. Um, if people are kind of just spending their minute and a half to see if the video is going to make them read your campaign, then they should know a little bit about how the game plays instead of just the story of the game. Um, so nice. Now, another thing I like to touch base on is stretch goals, depending on where a campaign is by the time we talk. Now, in your case, uh, you had a very low funding goal, so you've achieved that quite some time ago. Um, how did you decide what level to set your stretch goals at after that? So uh, I, Shane, I, I, I feel like you set it by backers instead of dollars. That's different. Right. So early on, it was by dollars. Um, my campaign was a little weird when I launched it. I, basically, I didn't know how the campaign was going to go. And uh, I think I had to shift uh, midway because um, I had some feedback on it. So I shifted that to number of backers so that the um, backers would feel like they would get rewards after uh, a certain accomplishment. But stretch goals uh, shouldn't be the main focus. They, they should just kind of help you uh, let your backers keep engaged and share with their um, fellow campaigns uh, mates and also your followers. When your followers come back and you, you've unlocked a certain amount, you can see, oh, wow, you know, I, they've unlocked this and this. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll back on the last day. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing was... Uh, I listed out <laughs> all my stretch goals, which I think was a mistake. Um, but I did that for a different reason. I did that because I basically I work full time and I don't yeah. have much time to edit it. So, um, but now it's it's a totally different story. I hired a friend as a campaign manager now, and um, I, I have a better understanding after the first day. I, yeah, that's, that's one of the great things about the campaign page is um, it has its frivolities, but the, the fact that you can update any part of the page at any time, other than 
the pledges that people have already pledged for is a great feature. So if you don't like an image or you don't like where something's placed or you want to add a stretch goal or remove one, you can always spend some time doing that. And the stretch goals I also did uh, in proportion, which which I think people pointed this out, uh, not, not the stretch goal, I mean the funding goal. It was very low. It was like $500. Yeah. And a lot of people were mentioning that's not possible when actually if you print locally, it is actually possible. So those prototypes that people have played as a, as a, as a review, yep. uh, those can actually be the final product if you, you know, up, update it and clean it up and put in the proper UPC code. That is the final product, actually. <laughs> yeah, so if you only had 50 backers, you could still technically get them each their game. It might not give you much of a margin, but they would still get their game for what they paid for, right? Right, yeah. So if it's a passion project for you, and um, you know, I, I know a lot of people are asking too, why, why launch on Kickstarter then? Um, because you really don't know. You, you, could, you, you really don't know how much um, backers you could get. And Kickstarter is, is, I would say, more of like a marketing tool rather than than fun collecting place. Yeah, it's got it's got a great built-in audience of game board aficionados and hobbyists, and then it's really easy to send a link through Facebook, Instagram, email, whatever. So it's really kind of a catch-all that helps you market in places you never might before, plus their own kind of uh, marketing system that they do automatically based on what people follow and have backed in the past. Right, and it also uh, costs more time and money if you're not going to go through Kickstarter, uh, because basically what would I, I have to do is talk to one of my consolidators, and then I would have to spend time to try and get that game sold to distributors, and those those take up a lot of time, you know. Yeah. Uh, with Kickstarter, I think I could work on it maybe 10, 20 minutes a day uh, until I'm ready to launch, and then when I'm launched, you know, if I have project manager, I can manage it within like an hour, two hours a day. So I feel like it's less stress, at least for me. Yeah. Right on. Well, maybe in your history then as a repeat creator on Kickstarter, what kind of habits have you formed that you find that you do with every project that you do? Um, just, you know, maybe it's just second nature for you, but maybe something a new creator could learn from. I think what one is definitely starting a landing page early. Yeah. That's, that's a must, I think getting that follower count up, um, play testing your game. A lot of times people are more focused on the money than the gameplay. Yeah. So you, ha you, you have to be really passionate in this industry and, and focus on the gameplay because if you can't do that, then you, you might as well just not launch that Kickstarter um, because you have to be, when you're ready, you have to expect zero backers too. That, that's a possibility that you Certainly always is. have to keep, keep in your mind. Um, another thing that um, I prepare ahead of time is, you know, a spreadsheet with reviewers, spreadsheet with stretch goals. Um, I think those are important to prepare ahead of time. You don't necessarily have to have all the art ready and, yeah. and stuff because you, you don't know how you're going to do in the first day. And, also, I have this math formula for how your Kickstarter is going to do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think um, 
it's your your first day is going to be your biggest day your second day is going to be like half of that and then you mirror that for the last two days and then uh in between it's going to be like um probably like 25 percent of your first day for the entire length of the in between is what you're saying right yeah 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 yeah, and that's very similar to what you'd see on KickTrack or on Bigger Cake, which is another Kickstarter kind of monitoring platform. You see that bell curve in every single campaign. The only time you don't is if somebody's doing something outside of the norm, like a convention or a um, special retail backer funding in between. But um, it's great that you layer it that way. I think you and I think similar. I, I do a spreadsheet as well where I'll have like eight different tabs. One tab is for the costs. One Perfect, tab is yeah. for like the... Um, descriptions one is for the art one is for the um, yeah and then color reviewers and all that yeah <laughs> there's, there's so much you can do on a single spreadsheet and yeah. um, can save you all kinds of headache down the road yeah but definitely it's easy to shy away from not tracking your review copies and stuff like that but i think it's it's really important that you force yourself to keep a record of you know art you know stretch goals um review copies yeah Cool. And now if we take a look before Koi Garden, what your highest funding game of, of your history is called Terrors of the Deep. It's the, the, kind of an expansion to the refuge. And you raised over $100,000 with over 1,500 backers, or just probably after uh, late pledges anyway, 1,400 and something. But um, still excellent results. And you included miniatures in it, which I know is often insta-back for many people, uh, depending on how detailed the miniatures are. So I thought maybe if you could share your experience with a small campaign compared to that massive campaign, like what was the big difference and what did you learn from that bigger campaign? So I think with the bigger campaign, you definitely need more dedicated time. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an excellent um, team, which was John and I, John Brieger, a lot of people know know him for Breger Development or Breger Creative, but he goes around the industry a lot, and he helped me a lot on that project. And uh, we both think kind of similar, so we um, we had a lot of the things that we could knock out really fast. Um, but the marketing on that was also more. Yeah. I think because we were really trying to hit for the wall. Um, when we saw that first day come in, we were like, oh, we want to hit 200, 500,000. But yeah. our expectation before the uh, the first day was, oh, we just want to hit 20, 30K. And then, we, and then we, we got really, after like the first two days, we got really into it and said and we told each other hey let's let's gun for the wall you know let's let's try to hit hit for that and i I think it really went well when we ramped up the marketing the the project went up too um yeah but i think there were there are other reasons behind that like you said it had like really quality miniatures that we spent a long time on had really quality art and gameplay and it was it was a very um a hands-on project it that project was a a um, game that we put a lot of effort into the quality of the yeah. project. Yeah, it looks really slick on the Kickstarter campaign page. I mean, you see this giant kind of octopusy creature with tentacles coming out of the board and these really cool um, underwater 
armored minis. It's just so different than what I've seen before. An underwater kind of uh, miniature adventure game. Right. Really cool. I think that um, when people uh, look at miniature miniature games, they tend to think um, maybe it's just the miniatures that that kind of sell the game. Yeah. But I want to specify that if you're just starting out, miniatures is a very difficult thing to get into um, and very expensive in the manufacturer. Um, so you'll you'll need to know. You know how many minis can fit in one mold? How much each mold costs? And uh, you'll you're gonna need to know, you know, what kind of files is what, like STL, OBJ, and if your 3D creator can make that clean without any holes. Um, so it's it's a it's a different world. I remember I had to um, buy because I would order prototypes and shape waste yeah but they would cost like 25 dollars a piece wow so i had to actually order a 3d printer so i could 3d print them myself and i i used i used a new type of 3d printer which was uh the 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 led i think okay because uh, there's different kinds and you'll have to do your own research in that world too <laughs> if you want to <laughs> save money um, and you have to be safe too, because a lot of that stuff is toxic too. Like the filament gets in the air, so you, you want to wear masks. Um, the uh, the resin, you have to wear gloves, and you can't touch it. You have to make sure it's dry, UV dry, before you take it out. So it's it's a totally different world with that with that minis aspect. Um, but once you get it, it's it's not so bad. And yeah. I think it's similar to the 2D games where you hire an artist, which will be a sculptor in this case. He'll make you a file, and then you start doing it. Yeah, it's, it's a whole different approach to gaming, and you kind of have to do that in tandem while still getting art for the game because I don't think there's any games out there that have uh, good minis and bad art or bad minis and good art. You kind of need both to be good for it to get right. the sales that you got out of your refuge game. So it's quite an accomplishment, and you must have learned a lot trying to yeah. develop that. One thing I did learn that you probably won't read anywhere, and it, I think this is incredibly important that I learned from the sculptor, is that if you have a concept art of your miniature, you can actually make your minis look even better. Because a lot of the sculptors may not be artists as well, so they can't visualize what you're saying. Right. If you, if you say, hey, make, make it look like, um, I don't know, like make it look like Legolas from... Lord of the Rings, they're not going to know what you mean. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I actually um, hired a concept artist to um, read the descriptions of my characters yeah. and put everything together. And um, it turned out, you know, amazing. They, they captured the uh, piece really well through, through 2D art before it turned to 3D art. Yeah, and that was similar when I got the – I was considering doing 3D minis when I did Die in the Dungeon, but I opted for acrylic standees instead. But I still got the 3D uh, molds made by a, a sculptor, like a digital version. So all they needed was two-dimensional art, and they actually built the whole character out of the art that was done by Tristan for the card anyway. So thankfully in that case, nice. I didn't have to do a 3D sculpt concept art, but it's, it's amazing what they can put together once they have something to look at. 
Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. That, <laughs> that sounds like um, that right on where that's the usual standard procedure. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, maybe uh, given your experience from these other campaigns, I mean, you talked about some of your repeat processes. Um, after the Kickstarter funds, a lot of people that listen to this may be completely blind to because this might be their first game they're working on and they're just listening to this podcast to get their feelers wet and kind of know what to expect. So you've been on the other side, you got the funds, you made the game, you shipped the game, backers responded and you moved on to your next game. Uh, kind of in that experience, what do you think is one of the largest obstacles new creators would encounter after they've hit that funding after their Kickstarter campaign is over? So I've now worked with a few designers and I, I tried to coach them to launch their games. And I, I found that the biggest hurdle for people is staying consistent, really. Um, you know, because designers really pitch to publishers because they don't want to spend time each day. But all it yeah. takes is really an hour a day. And um, I've tried to work with a designer who wants to publish his game, who wants to use his own money. Um, and I'm okay with that. But I told him, you, you have to be willing to dedicate an hour a day. you know. And what he told me was, well, I'm still waiting for art. I can't get in touch with um, the person. I'm like, no, you, you have to dedicate an hour a day. Even if you're waiting for art, I think what what you need to do is really set aside an hour each day. And if you can't get art, then do something else. You know, there's yeah. always something to do, whether you're just typing in your Kickstarter blank spots or whether you're starting that spreadsheet, you're start, starting a plan because it's going to be like a job. You know, you're going to have to put in some time. Yeah. And then there's other parts of the job that, you know, you don't, necessarily think of as the job but just commenting on other people's games and commenting on board game feeds or sharing what you played on game night even if you didn't have a game night and you just take a picture of your board on the table but just participating in those groups getting your name kind of known is something you can spend some of that time doing as well yep yep agreed agreed you can always do research too but whatever you do you know you got to stay on the hour each day yeah. Now, so what you're saying is even after the Kickstarter has funded and they're waiting for arts, there's other things they should be working on. Is that kind of what you're saying? Right. There, there's always something to work on. And right I think on. that's that's the biggest hurdle, at least for me, maybe maybe not for every every person. But, you know, from what I ex experienced and from watching people, it's staying on that hour hurdle hurdle of working on your project. And a lot of times people get sidetracked too. They start working on other game designs. Shoot, I know that's my biggest weakness. Are you looking into my head right now? Because you know, <laughs> you're trying to work on your game and then somebody pings you and you're like, oh, I guess I'll reply to that. And then you reply yeah. to that and you're like, oh, I've got some notifications. Maybe I'll check those out. And then it's, oh, right. i got to check my email. And then by the time for, you get back to what you're for, working on. For me, uh, it's game design. And it's like I'll, I'll be working on my game and then suddenly I'll think of an amazing other game. Yeah. And I'll start working on that. But um, I did find um, I, I keep a Google Keep notes. And every time I get a new idea, I just list it down there and let it marinate for a while and stay focused on what I need to do. 
<laughs> marinate is a great word. That's what I've been trying to do with my last game idea for, I'd say, six months because I was already invested in Questeros, but then this other game idea came to me, and it's just been, like you said, marinating ever since, and I haven't actually fleshed out a prototype, but I can't wait until I do. So, uh, But just being able to say, hey, I'm committed to this game. I've got to get it finished. People have already paid me money for it. Then I'll go to my next game. You really got to stay on top of that. So I'm glad that you've got that advice. Give an hour a day at least to whatever campaign you've already funded and get it done. Get it get it right before you move on. Yeah, you, you can't go wrong if, if you spend an hour, two hours on your game. It's eventually going to launch on Kickstarter. That's that's all I'm going to say. But yeah. if you don't spend that, if, if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm waiting for the artist to get me some art. And you wait weeks, months. Next thing you know, you're, you're, that project is just going to be under the pile of other ideas that you have. Yeah. Very cool. Now, you mentioned that you have a, a closet full of games or uh, a head with a closet full of games at one point when we were talking before. Can you tell me what your next game might be now that you know Koi is funded and you have days left to finish it of course and you're going to fulfill it and ship it out and all that but what's next for floyd lou i mean you used to be part of a collaboration i think you're kind of working independently right now uh yeah so i, I like to work with people um and i'm talking with a um a friend right now to possibly publish a party game and this party game is a really really cool you know party game it's it's popular in prototype nights and what it is, is it's a pitching game, and you pitch really terrible dates. Mm. So you would get, like, an option of your terrible location plus your terrible activity. Yeah. So, like, let's say, you know, podcasting in a car, right? Yeah. And then you would try to pitch it to um, a person who's picking the dates, and it's a really simple concept. You you just you, you mix up this poor activity, and then the the person who has the cards will be like, hey, you know, um, so this place is it's a really lively place, but everyone's quiet over there. <laughs> when in reality, you're actually talking about a date in the graveyard, you know. Oh dear. <laughs> So you try to make it make it sound better than it is. See? Yeah, so it's it's funny because you try to upsell it, and and then at at the end, uh, people will just show their cards, and everybody will have shits and giggles for, you know, for fun. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 really uh, simple. Uh, but I, I am working on a a bunch of different projects that you know I want to get public published. Um, yeah. I have maybe like 10 or 15 games that I'm um, working on right now. And in the end, I, th I think it's going to be whatever is the most fun or whatever is the most accomplishable at the moment. Because a lot of those, obviously, I won't be able to have enough resources to do right now. Yeah. Um, like there's this dragon territory control game with miniatures that I want to work on, but that might take a while to actually kind of get out there just because of the scale. Yeah, like you said, anything with minis or where you have a lot of variation, you have to play test to death. So that might take you years to develop, whereas a party game, you can probably develop in a matter of a month or two 
with right. the right crowd. So I also like bluffing games. So I have a few different bluffing games. Um, one is, you know, the missile bluff game where people are bluffing how big their missile power is. Nice. <laughs> and it's, it's simple concepts, but they're fun concepts. Yeah. And then I have another game called Mr. Hyde where you have two identities, but you don't know your other one. And put those put together uh, will create your identity. So other people know who you are, but you, you won't know. But you know the, the other half, so you kind of have to meet in between. Right. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde concept. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you've shared a lot of great things with us, Floyd. I'm really excited to see where Koi goes. Um, I mean, if you look at KickTrack and whatnot, you should break 20,000 by the time it's over, if not more. Same following your um, your philosophy that you spoke about earlier, your trend kind of anticipator. So that's great to see. Uh, that'll come to backers later this year. I think you're planning to ship by uh, the end of the summer if all goes well. So congratulations. And maybe any last parting words of wisdom before we wrap up here? Thanks, Wes. And I, I think just that, that an opportunity to get my game out there um, it makes me really happy, whether it's like a hundred backers, a thousand backers. Um, and I think that should be other people's mentalities too. Don't come in thinking it's just for our money and don't come in expecting you're going to be the next millionaire with your next Kickstarter, but do it in the long run. Cause I've known a lot of people who was a one shot hit. They yeah. didn't make their, expectations and then they leave the industry completely and that's not what you want to do when you fail you just get back up you learn from it and then you you start a new project every game design is different and eventually you'll you'll find um, that each project is unique to its own identity yeah if you can build a foundation proving that you can create a decent game that the rules work and the game makes sense people back it you fulfill it and you get that cycle going um, who knows when you'll actually get that grand slam that you might have been looking for on the first game but getting that grand right. slam on the first game is very rare i think uh, there's a lady named julie beerworth i think her name is mm -hmm. but she recently put a post on facebook just showing that whole trend of what percentage of board game kickstarters actually exceed um 300 backers and i think it was less than 50 percent of games actually exceed 300 backers so you're already above that 50 percent with koi so right on. Yeah, but come in with zero expectations for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then see where it goes from there. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us today, Floyd. Uh, uh, again, hope all the best with where Koi goes, and I'll be following your next game, I'm sure. Oh, thank you so much, Wes.